0: That's what they know. How how are they supposed to know any different unless someone tells them different? And if someone tells them different and they choose to ignore it, then that's that's their own thing. That's a different thing.
1: But I think, I mean, how are you supposed to know? Exactly. Like, how are you aware there's a problem if you don't know that it exists?
2: This is Gendered. Conversations about the influence of communication culture, and gender. I'm Anna Kudak. Thanks for tuning in. Last week, we heard Carter and Cameron's thoughts on locker room talk and what it has done to their experiences in expressing themselves. If you're just joining us, I suggest you go back to the first episode. At the end of episode one, we promised to dig deeper into the emotional connection Carter mentioned. Instead, in the wake of the Baylor football scandal, we'll gain insight into some of the ways coaches influence players. Baylor University has recently come under fire for its football team's sexual assault problem and the denial of support to their victims. Cameron and I were talking about these issues and then he dropped a bomb on me. He said that athletes use the word rape to mean winning. Okay, Cameron, so tell me about the use of the word rape in sports teams.
3: I never really recognized like the gravity like the intensity of the word rape because it was pretty commonplace to use the word rape in the sports context like saying if somebody got knocked down really bad like holy crap you got raped out there let's go out there and rape them i didn't realize the gravity of what i was saying until i said rape like lightly in front of my mother and she freaked out at me like that is really not okay to say and that didn't stop me from saying it. I didn't really realize like the connotation of that word is extreme. I didn't really realize it until we did the research for this and, and listened to the stories of rape victims. I didn't get a sense of the violating nature of the word.
2: So it was, so your mom told you and then you still maybe would have used it?
3: Yeah, like I kind of... um dismissed my mom's feelings about it because it was so commonplace in what I was doing. Like all, all my friends would say stuff like that and I didn't really think anything of it until I actually looked into stories about rape and how how terrible the effect is on the victims of the offense. It's really sad.
2: So are coaches participating in this talk? When I asked Carter and Cameron about whether or not their coaches participated in locker room talk, here's what they said. Coaches
4: don't do that. Coaches, they weren't involved in that at all. They're pretty, they, you know, they're, they understand that you can't say that kind of stuff. But they don't, they don't they say don't it, do but it, but they don't,
2: they don't tell you not to?
4: Um,
2: or have you ever been told not
4: to? I don't think, I, I, I can't think of a time that it was said in front of a coach where most oh, okay. of it's locker room. And they're not in there? No, they don't go in the locker rooms often.
2: Yeah.
4: Um, but I would. It would be kind of interesting to to just say something one day and see if he if and see if one of them said anything or not. Just kind of test it and see what they see what they did.
2: If using the word rape inappropriately in sports is tolerated and perhaps even celebrated, are coaches condoning sexual violence? So if coaches are not in the locker rooms, are they blameless in the creation of a culture where sexual assault is often dismissed? The Baylor scandal would tell us that in fact coaches are held responsible for these sexist attitudes and the actions that go along with them, but only when the problems are discovered. The firing of our Bryles at Baylor represents that our teams are influenced by coaches, even if the coaches aren't present when sexist language is rampant in the locker room, and even when their players are committing sexual assault. The lack of intervention on behalf of a coach is indeed communicating that sports and masculinity defy law and decency. However, the relationship between coaches and players is a complicated one. Baylor football players took to Twitter to mourn the loss of their coach. Taylor Young said, Will forever love Coach Bryles. He changed my life. Thank you, Coach. Ryan Reed said, You don't turn your back on the leader. I'm right behind him through it all. Although many of the players under Bryles have expressed a sense of injustice over his termination, we have no insight into his demeanor on and off the field. And while we can't speak to Bryles' interactions with his players, we did become curious. In an attempt to uncover what other coaches say when nobody is watching, let's hear some stories from college athletes. This is Sam.
0: The first yelling coach is in fifth grade.
2: Sam just recently retired from playing college soccer due to injuries. He's in school to become a teacher and is passionate about this topic. Also, when you're a professor podcaster, you'll note that I'm much more focused on the conversation quality than the audio quality. Sorry about the breezy sound you're about to endure as you listen to Aaron and Sam.
0: Well, I played club soccer year-round from fourth grade until a couple of years ago. And last year was the first time I'd ever not played soccer in my life. In fifth grade, I had a coach that was a yeller, and oh my goodness, he used to make me cry so much. It was I mean, we're, I was in fifth grade, like we're 10 years old, like we're little kids, yeah. and he, he was a screamer. And everyone knew it. Uh so knew a place. lot about the game. But I for me, that was like at that, especially at that time, like that was the worst thing that could have happened to me. Like mm. I used to like fake sick at practice or not go to practice. Like my parents knew. And like, mm. but I'd fake sick and you know, go to practice, or I'd like I'd hate going to practice and I'd go and I'd just be like upset and I'd just like kinda cry and he, and that was that was really hard. And he he was a super like man up, like you're a man, and he was very into that like macho, like, mm-hmm. you're a man and you need yeah. to get over this um, and that was really hard for me in 5th grade, because you try to like stay strong and like not cry and then but you're 10 years old, like I couldn't help it, I didn't have the, the willpower to not <laughs> cry, you know <laughs> yeah, and, how, and how awful that was, because then I felt like I was like like the, the sissy of the team uh, like no one else was crying, it was just me and I remember that felt awful like then I felt like I was like the emotional sensitive kid and then that was really hard to to wrap my head around and after that I had a coach in sixth grade and then my next coach was uh, I ended up getting I went to like a different team and he he was super like total opposite like really Mm -hmm. positive and really and I remember that like for me in terms of like that probably saved me for soccer I think (laughs) but like had I not had that I don't I probably wouldn't have played soccer for all those years yeah um just funny I've never thought about that I should probably tell him that <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but uh that he that was really like that was huge for me of being really positive and that helped yeah. me just kind of be myself and relax mm-hmm. and not be super
2: stressed out about it so Sam had a horrible coach, and then a really good coach, but it's not always so simple to tease out the good from the bad.
0: But I don't know, then once I got to college, I had another coach that was a yeller, and that was okay for me, and that worked for me, um, which is which is weird. But I think it was just because I was really able to separate the, the personal from the idea. Like yeah. what he was saying, I understood and made sense, but how he said it wasn't the best way, but I was... I never, for some reason in college, I never
1: struggled to separate that. The, I, yeah, because you could see, like, it wasn't from a malicious...
0: Yeah, even if it came like, out in a very malicious way. Yeah,
1: because it did the lie. Yeah, off. yeah,
0: I was I was really able to just separate that and to just kind of tune that out and mm-hmm. think whatever and then really get the, the message, the, the meta message of what, what he was saying um, and then be able to just think in a strictly soccer sense, I guess, so... Mm-hmm. So which I don't sucks. know. I think that I don't know. I think that yelling, as long as I'm able to make that separation, I felt like that was better mm. for me as a as a player, which is so yeah. weird because in any other regard, like outside of sports for me, don't don't ever do that to me. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like that's not that's not good.
2: And this is Aaron. Aaron played soccer throughout his college experience and even hopes to play professionally. You'll notice in Aaron's comments that some coaches that he had good relationships with also made statements that he can now recognize as inappropriate.
1: It's funny that you mention it to like that fifth grade yelling coach. Really? me, One of my academy coaches was, uh, was like an older guy from England. He played for Wolverhampton Wanderers mm-hmm. for like 13 years. And then originally he wasn't supposed to like even be in contact with our youth academy, and now, like, I know why, but (laughs) he's, like, super awesome guy, like, I actually had a really good relationship with him, and he's really fun, but if you think about it, he, like, tried to condition us to be, like, these warriors, and he was, like, in England, we were bred to do this and this and this, and then, like, as I'm thinking about it, the stuff that he said was, like, not okay, we're, (laughs) we're, like... 15 16 years old and and like if you miss a goal he'd be like oh could you score if I put some hair around it and we'd be like what (laughs) and then he if you missed a shot he'd be like go do push-ups or like find a hole in the ground to put your dick in and like really weird really weird statements and stuff that like obviously you shouldn't really be saying and then Uh, his assistant coach, also an amazing guy, but, like, he's a South African player who, like, played professionally for, like, 13 different teams over the course of his life. And I remember one time we were doing, like, an ab circuit, and, you know, you do, like, abs, your, like, legs are in the air, whatever. Mm -hmm. A lot of people would stop and, like, push their shorts back up to, like, yeah. yeah, and he'd be like, we're not girls. We're not worried about fashion. We're here to be tough and all this kind of stuff and just yell at you and, like, that's, like, their type of motivation. So, at the time, you don't think about it because you're just, like, yeah, you're right. Like, I got to go because we're, we're trying to get better and we got to do all this stuff. And then, you know, you develop that sense of self and you're just, like, oh, wow, like, that is terrible yeah. now that you think about it. And it's, like, it's subconscious conditioning. and. Yeah. I'm sure they aren't even aware of it, you know? They no, they mean that they in know. a that's genuine sense. Yeah, and like just like the the coach from England, yeah. he said they were literally bred that way. <laughs> yeah. Like when he played for Wolverhampton Academy, like they literally conditioned him to be this way to get this result mm-hmm. out of him. And that's like how they know how to do yeah. it. And I think it's really easy to villainize that person
0: as well. Mm-hmm. We're like just because that's what they know that's what they know that's how how are they supposed to know any different unless someone tells them different Um, exactly and if someone tells them different and they choose to ignore it then that's that's their own thing that's a
1: different thing but I think I mean how are you supposed to know exactly like how are you aware there's a problem if you don't know that it exists right
2: It's hard to break these habits when there's no awareness. And as Sam said, he doesn't tolerate being yelled at by anyone but a coach. Yelling on behalf of a coach is often used as a way to motivate, but the way it's perceived varies from player to player. Let's hear what Carter and Cameron have to say about coaches yelling.
4: Like, I remember getting yelled at in second, third grade football, and I always, I liked getting yelled at by coaches. Like, I have since I was really young. For whatever reason, I just viewed it as a positive thing rather than a negative thing but I remember getting yelled at and my mom being real concerned about you know should they be talking to you like that should you know I'm gonna talk to the coaches and I was like no no mom if if anything just have dad talk to him like I didn't want my mom to talk to my coach because it was Less impactful for a woman to talk to a football coach than a man to talk to oh, a football yeah. coach. Oh yeah,
3: and the way you would be viewed if your mom went and talked to the oh, coach yeah. for you? Yeah. Yeah, that's that a major too. consideration. Yeah.
4: Yeah. Versus your dad, if your dad goes and mm-hmm. talks, they're just having a conversation. Yeah, they're just about having football. about football. Yeah. But if a woman does it, you know.
3: And it's like you ran and cried home to mama. Which, See, which, which, I like, did, which I did. Because these aren't of, even
4: things that I haven't, that I've thought about before. I'm just, like, sitting here thinking, and I um, realized that, and I was like, wow, yeah. I just realized that the difference between my mom
3: talking to my coaches and my dad talking mm-hmm. to my coaches. Yeah, that, um, that kind of sparked a memory in my head where I was complaining to my mom about coaches not getting off my ass, and I kind of had the opposite thing where she was like, that that means they care about you. That means they want you to do better, which I think I think is a good perspective. I mean, to a degree, that's true. To a degree, if it's um, a good unless coach and they know how to do it, it's true. Yeah, unless they're just <laughs> yeah. laying into you because they're assholes. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, with me, I would I I liked when my when my O line coach yelled at me, but if our defensive coordinator ever said something to me, yeah. I would just have none of it. Why? because um, I didn't like him as a person. Yeah. He was he was a hyper masculine type, um, constantly telling stories about the the team he played in Louisiana that only ran swinging gate, and the time that he wrestled a bear. So and he said brassled, yeah. wrestled. rassled a bear. Yes. Um, yeah. Not not gonna like that guy because he's not like my dad.
2: So in Carter knowing, even as a young child, that his mom talking to the football coach would be deemed as less influential, impactful, or deserving of attention, how does it affect the way he views women outside of football? Can he put that information in a container and only see women from this lens in the football context? Or does it affect the way he sees women in all contexts? His female teachers, his girlfriends, women in films, physicians, or even his own mother? Two things are happening here. Remember, Cameron's mom tried telling him not to use the word rape inappropriately, and he didn't take her seriously. Then, we're teaching players that their mom's voices have less impact with coaches. Do you think these two things go hand in hand, or is this just teenage boys? We'll go into even more depth about gender, sports, and parenting in a later episode, so keep tuning in. But finally, let's hear from Andre, a 52-year-old registered nurse who has played soccer and hockey his whole life. He explains things from a coach's perspective. Have you ever coached?
5: Yes. What do you
2: coach these days?
5: Uh, I don't coach any... I'm not coaching a team now, but I coach soccer. Okay. Yes, and it was... um, I was a very tough coach. See, and I think historically, soccer has been a sport that I enjoyed from the time I was five years old. And all of my coaches were tough on me. Well, tough on the team. They had an aptitude to win and win only at all costs. And they pushed and pushed and pushed. So... Because I played on successful teams, I felt that that was the way to coach, to push your players to the max while respecting them. And that's how I coached. And I've had many run-ins with families, with moms and dads who say, hey, you know, I don't like the way you talk to my son. And my response always would be, well, your son has deficits, and I'm trying to improve upon those deficits. And I may sound harsh, but this is how I coach." So you have two choices. You can keep your kid with me, or you can take him out of my sport. I always give him choices.
2: Mm-hmm.
5: Because it's, if this kid decides to play this game throughout his lifespan, he's going to um, interact with coaches that are worse than me.
2: So you think it's, un- it's inevitable that, <laughs> it's inevitable. that a, a, a kid is going to end up with a worse coach? Yes,
5: yes. You know, coaches are a different breed. They are a different breed. Some of these coaches are up night and day strategizing, putting plans together, analyzing players, analyzing other teams. Their life is to win and to be successful because there's always another level that they're trying to get to through their history. Their history dictates where they go. So they're trying very hard to be successful. It's, it's, it's no different than a kid being in college trying to get through his program. Trying to graduate, you know, because he knows at the end of the tunnel there's a potential for a job out there somewhere. But he's got to graduate first. Coaches are very much the same way, you know. They're trying to get to the next level. They're trying to get their team to the next level or themselves to the next level. So yes, you have to be very aggressive with your players while respecting them. You've got to respect your players. You got to be able to um, separate your own personal feelings sometimes, and you have to be able to identify who's weak, who can tolerate what you're dishing out to them. And some kids you have to coddle, but oftentimes that requires a lot of energy and it takes away from your your whole grand scheme of things if you have to coddle a player. If you have to coddle a player constantly, he or she's not getting it.
2: We're in the middle of a movement, though, where things are changing. Regarding the way the media and other football enthusiasts have reacted to the firing of our Bryles, ESPN senior writer Ivan Mazel wrote, Mark this day down. Turn the corner of this page in the college football family Bible. Someone in the gridiron industrial complex stood up and said some standards are more important than winning. He went on to say, Who is responsible? You are. We all are. We demand greater adherence to community standards of good behavior. Coaches must treat players well. Players must treat other students with respect. The double standard is the exception, no longer the rule. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Gendered Podcast. Also, do you have a story to tell about sports and gender? If so, we'd love to connect with you. Share your own stories about the language used on sports teams and social media with the hashtag RapeIsNotWinning. Email us at connect at genderedpodcast.com. Thanks to Abby Tilford, Claire Falkner, Kevin Tran, Wesley Ellenwood, Jenny Hansen, Kristen Chamberlain, Anne Hoth, Stacy Weisbrode, Riva Bataldin, and Brie Kopka. For their musical talents, too, thanks to Nick Morowecki and Mitchell Johnson. I hope you enjoyed today's episode, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening!